All right, we continue in John chapter 10. We stopped mid-paragraph. Sorry about that. Uh, Didn't want to try and cram too much stuff, good stuff, into one sermon. Um, I am not a Puritan, and you are not a Puritan audience ready for three-hour sermons. So, actually, they weren't three-hour long. Really wasn't that way. Okay. We'll be picking up in verse 11 in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon. And he is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we ask that you would grant us hearts to understand you and your word, to understand ourselves and our need. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear of the greatness of your love for us in Christ Jesus, whom you sent to us as a propitiation for our sins. In Christ's name, amen. Shepherds, sheep, unless you're Diane and you grew up with sheep around, it's a very kind of unfamiliar thing. Uh, Most of us haven't had a shepherd that we know of in terms of a general physical sense and an earthly sense of the term. And for us, it's really hard, I think, to make the connection between what Jesus says and our lives. Now, for the original audience, it was very easy. They were very familiar with shepherds. They were very familiar with sheep. And uh, it may have been a little difficult for them to connect with the idea that they themselves were sheep, But they knew what a shepherd was, and they understood why sheep needed a shepherd. We live in an age where we have doctors, policemen, firemen, uh, financial consultants, all kinds of things, all kinds of experts, people that know how to fix our cars and things like that. So we don't have this concept of this one person who oversees every aspect of our lives, because we have a number of people overseeing aspects of our lives. 
I'm pretty sure that uh, Turning Bear for the last year didn't care if he saw his financial consultants. He wanted his doctor. That's how, that's how we understand life. For the sheep, the shepherd was like all of those things, wrapped up into one. We need to understand or, or come to a greater understanding of our incredible need for someone to shepherd us and for God's amazing provision of a shepherd for us. Okay? So let's work with this. This idea of why is Jesus a good shepherd or the good shepherd and why it is we need a good shepherd. The big idea this morning is that sacrifice sets Jesus apart as the good shepherd. As we go through this passage, there are two things you really can't miss. That there is such a thing as the good shepherd and this good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All of it revolves around those two ideas. The first thing I want us to remember is that the good shepherd doesn't run from danger. Jesus, who has already said that he is the door of the sheep. Notice the way in which Jesus is just shifting all of the metaphors here to to help the people get a greater understanding of just who he is and all that he provides for his people. And the door was the the door to salvation, as we saw in that. Let's keep that in mind as we kind of talk about some of these things this morning. But Jesus shifts to another I am statement. He shifts to the statement of, I am the good shepherd. And Mike read from Ezekiel 34 this morning. And what should have been going through the minds of all of those people, and I want to go through your minds this morning, is the promises of God in Ezekiel 34 that he himself would come, that he would gather his sheep, that he himself would be their shepherd. And so what we have going on when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, is he's again claiming divinity to himself. He's not just saying, I'm a pretty good shepherd. He's saying, I am the one. I am the one that that God's people have been waiting for, who have endured under bad shepherd after bad shepherd, who've had to deal with these thieves and robbers, the Pharisees. I'm the one who's come. I have come to gather the flock of God, is what Jesus wants them and us to understand This idea of the good shepherd, that's kind of a vague term for us. Another way of perhaps uh, putting that would be the worthy shepherd or the noble shepherd. Now that's sort of significant because if we remember from those Christmas sermons that we hear almost every year, what do we remember about shepherds? They really generally weren't reliable guys. Okay, They had a reputation if they passed through your property that they might take some stuff from your property. There weren't many people that would say, good shepherd. He might be good at his job, but not necessarily be a good man. The testimony of a shepherd was not generally one that was relied upon. Okay? They didn't have a good reputation. And so when Jesus talks about himself being the good shepherd, he is the worthy and the noble shepherd of God's flock. He's exclusive. He is the only one who is a worthy or noble shepherd for the people of God. 
What is it that makes him good, noble, worthy? Jesus says it is precisely because he lays down his life for or on behalf of the sheep. His worthiness is wrapped up in this idea of sacrifice. That's not what shepherds were normally known for. He throws out the contrast so that we grasp part of what's going on in all of this. And he contrasts himself with the hired hand. Because the hired hand, Jesus says, they don't own the sheep. They're paid to watch the sheep, but because they don't have a vested interest in the sheep, because they don't love the sheep, when the wolf comes, they are ready to run. He loves his safety. He loves himself more than he loves the sheep. For him, it is just a job. And it's a job that is not worth dying in. How would you like to have a police officer or a fireman who had that mentality? Let's see, that fire. That one seems a little too big and a little too hot. Why don't we just kind of, you know, stand over here by the side, wait till it burns down the, your house, and, you know, then we'll just kind of clean up the debris for you, maybe. That's not what you want. You want someone who's ready to enter into the danger for you. That's what Jesus is talking about. When the wolf comes, he's not going to run. The hired man would run. The Mishnah says that the responsibility of the hired man, the hired shepherd, is that if there is one wolf, they're supposed to stay. Okay? Now, some of you are probably thinking, one wolf sounds pretty bad to me. Okay? I don't know. I have never encountered a wolf in the wild. Usually there's a great big fence between me and the wolf, and he's not, he's not really interested in me. He's usually pacing, or as we were at the Phoenix Museum the other day, sleeping. Okay? Not, it's not you know, hard to be brave when the wolf is asleep. Okay? So if there's more than one wolf, the hired man had permission, so to speak, to run away. Okay? Let the wolf take what it wants and come back and... Shepherd for another day. Okay? What Jesus is saying is that he doesn't run. Doesn't care how many wolves are coming down upon the flock. Jesus is going to stay. I'm reminded, of course, of David. First Samuel 17, when uh, Goliath is terrorizing the whole army of Israel, and David says, is there no one, essentially, who will go against this man? Here, I'll do it. And, of course, Saul tries to talk him out of this as king, and David reminds him of something. Saul said to, uh, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. I love how he says, used to keep sheep. He still was. It wasn't like he graduated. All of his brothers were in the army. He's still keeping sheep. Okay. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I usually don't think of lions or bears as having beards to grab, but... That's what David says he did. He grabbed it. He killed it. He didn't back down, didn't run away, and 
He had a great confidence in his God that enabled him to be confident in trouble. David, of course, points us to the greater David, Jesus himself, the one who created all things that exist, apart from whom there is nothing that has been created that was created. Okay? John 1. This Jesus, who has made all things, is not afraid of those things. And so it doesn't matter how many lions, how many bears, how many wolves may descend upon his flock, he does not back down. Why is this important? It is important precisely because sheep are utterly, absolutely defenseless. Do you know what the one defense the sheep have? Run away. Like King Arthur and his men in Holy Grail. That's all they do. Every problem that they meet, run away. It can be a bouncing little bunny across the, the desert terrain. Run away. Run away. That's all sheep do is run away. They're easily spooked by seemingly innocent little desert creatures. Bad news for you. We're often fearful, aren't we? Aren't we often spooked by things that really shouldn't spook us? Don't we lay awake at night sometimes in the fear of what might be? Not what actually is, but something that might be. We're afraid of shadows. We're afraid of ideas. Things that are ethereal, like ghosts. But they make us tremble and lose sleep. We need a bold and courageous shepherd who stands between us and the danger that comes our way. We need someone who is willing to risk his life in order to protect us. Now, we recognize that Jesus doesn't always do this immediately. And I mean, by that I mean not just time-wise, but himself. He often uses others. We also read from Acts 20, when Paul talks to the Ephesian elders, and what does he say? Protect the flock. Why? Wolves are coming. False teachers Okay, he wasn't talking in that case about real wolves, but he's talking about false teachers. And these men, these elders, had to stand in the gap between the rest of the flock and these false teachers. Not an easy thing to do. They can only do that if they know that Jesus is with them. They can only do that if they know Jesus doesn't run and Jesus is present with them in the work in which they do. And so, we elders, guys, we're called to stand firm. But we can only stand firm because Jesus stands firm. And we look to him who is our shepherd, our overseer, the shepherd of our souls. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that when the lions and tigers and bears of life show up, that what we need, where we need to look is specifically to Christ. 
We need to remember that He is the Good Shepherd. That He does not run when the trouble comes, but He stays. And He fights on behalf of the people He loves. So Jesus is the Good Shepherd precisely because He stands between us and danger. Secondly, the Good Shepherd dies for those He knows. The shepherd doesn't just know which sheep are his. Jesus didn't say that. I mean, he knows which sheep are his. But he also says he knows his sheep. And they know him. He knows the sheep in the sense of, like a shepherd, every shepherd knows the five sheep most likely to stray that day. Every shepherd knows the five sheep most likely to fall over and be cast down that day. The shepherd knows the sheep that tend to find themselves eating the wrong things or drinking the wrong things. The shepherd knows which ones are most likely to get sick because he knows his sheep. He knows their particular weaknesses. He knows their particular strengths. He knows what they like. He knows what they don't like. He knows their sinful habits and patterns. Jesus knows us like a shepherd knows his sheep. He knows which of you is likely to stray and why. He knows the sin that dazzles your eye and that you find so difficult to resist. He knows when you're afraid. He knows the types of things that cause fear in your heart, which would be different than the things that cause fear in your brother or sister's heart. He knows the sheep. He knows us. And he knows these things that seek to steal life from us. As I said, his sheep also know him. As much as a sheep can understand a shepherd, sheep understand their shepherd. Okay? They know who he is. They're able to recognize his voice and, generally speaking, entrust themselves to the shepherd. Sheep are, as I've mentioned last week, probably amongst the dumbest animals in the universe. Okay, That's why they need shepherds. You can can have a big pasture out there, you can put cows and horses, and generally speaking, they'll be okay. You can leave them out there for an undetermined period of time. Sheep... No, you have to bring them to where the food is. Then you have to bring them to where the water is. Then you have to inspect them on a regular basis to make sure they haven't gotten any parasites or anything else. Very labor-intensive, these sheep are. Okay? Very labor-intensive. And I lost where my brain was going. Life stairs. Okay, yeah, the knowledge. The sheep know him and therefore trust him because he's proven himself faithful over the long haul. Okay? And so, while it is good that Christ knows us, we need to remember who he is. 
We need to remember his past faithfulness so that when trouble comes, will he remember he will continue to be faithful to us? Think of it this way. I know my kids, and my kids know me. They don't always act like they know me. The other day at the zoo, I kept calling them, and they weren't listening. They were bedazzled by something. I don't even know what it was. It wasn't all that interesting, but they were bedazzled by it. But we know our kids. We tend to know what upsets them. We tend to know what they like, what food they like, what food they don't like how they're going to respond to the food they don't like. We know what allergies they have, all of these sorts of things. We as parents tend to recognize the dangers that each child is vulnerable to. And hopefully our kids trust us to know these things and look out for them. That's what a shepherd does. That's why we need a shepherd. Now... He compares this knowledge of, uh, this reciprocal knowledge of him and the sheep to the reciprocal experiential knowledge of him as father. Sorry, him and the father. Interesting that he would go there. The intimate knowledge that the eternal son has of the eternal father is the picture he wants these people to grasp of what it is like for him to know the sheep and a sheep to know him. A depth, a love, a mutual love and care. He wants them to understand. And it is precisely because of this relationship that exists between Jesus and the sheep that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is one of those texts that we often use as Presbyterians or other Reformed people to explain and defend the doctrine of particular atonement. Okay, I like that term because it's less likely to be misunderstood. Jesus is saying he dies for those he knows who are his. He's not saying he dies for every sheep ever because he does admit there are sheep in other folds that belong to other shepherds. He's only calling his own sheep. These are the sheep he's dying for. The sheep that the Father gave him that are his. Those are the ones he lays his life down. And it's not just theoretical, he actually did it. Peter apparently was very much entranced with this, not just John, because it marks his his first letter. This, in Isaiah 53, he kind of brings up repeatedly. For instance, in chapter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so, part of the danger that we are in, that we were in, is that we sinned. And sin will kill us. The wages of sin is death. We see as well that Peter talks about this again from similar to Isaiah 53. We were straying like sheep off into dangerous places. 
That was the danger. And then the salvation. Okay? The salvation is pictured in that we now live to righteousness because of His death for us. We, we have been healed by His wounds from the sickness of our soul. That now we have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So there's the picture of the danger, and here's what the shepherd has done to bring us back into salvation and everlasting life. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so again, we see the, da- the danger of sin that we have partaken of, which kills us. Christ has come and suffered for it. We were unrighteous and we're under the, we were under the wrath of God, but the righteous one has come and has laid down his life for us in order to return us to God, to bring us back where we belong, to bring us home. The salvation of Christ is not accomplished merely by dictate, but it is accomplished through his sacrificial death for the sheep to deal with the sin problem and to bring us back home. This is more than merely risk-taking. It's more than merely going up against the lion, the tigers, and the bears of life. But he's actually giving up his life. It's odd to me anyway, perhaps, that the word here for life is not what we've seen before, zoe. It's not the word bios that we might think it is. It's suke, soul. He gives up his soul, his being. Okay, not just physical life. He lays down his being for the sheep. All that he is, all that matters, he lays down for the salvation of the sheep. I cannot resist mentioning Romans 5 that we might sort of understand this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a, for a good person he would dare even to die. But God shows his, life for, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does it say about us? What does it say about his sheep? It says that they are weak, ungodly sinners. If you think you don't need a shepherd... You need to be reminded of what you are outside of Christ Jesus. A weak, ungodly sinner, and if we read a little bit farther, his enemies. And he came, not waiting for us to get our act together. He came to die and reclaim us while we were still in that stubborn, sinful state. So great is the shepherd who has come for us. Now, this is, in a sense, what Jesus is talking about in, ter- in terms of, you know, imagine how the original audience heard this. It's not a, it's not a stretch for me to think or, or to, to realize these people did think he was crazy. These people at the end, some of, he's nuts. He is a demon. No flock survives without its shepherd. They don't mature 
to a place like our children hopefully do, where they can take care of themselves. Sheep will always be sheep, and sheep will always need a shepherd. And it is death to the flock if the shepherd dies, unless he's replaced. And yet what Jesus says is, the only way they can have that life, that life to the full, that abundant life that I just told you about, is if I die for the sheep. Salvation through the death of Jesus. But he will see the satisfaction of his suffering. He notes not only the the flock that he's calling out of the, the sheep pen of Israel, but he says, I have sheep not of this fold. In other words, from another place. Kind of fascinating as I um, was reading Sproul, uh, brief commentary on this. He noted that he's interacted with people who had a very strange thought to me, but maybe not to you, uh, that after leaving this earth, the ascension, Jesus went to other planets, and that there were people on other planets that uh, you know were part of his flock. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> I don't know who R.C. was hanging out with that, uh, came, that told him that strange thing. But that's one view of the other flock, so to speak, or the other uh, fold, not flock. I want to keep that straight. Some have said that this refers to the Jews in uh, Dysphoria, the scattered Jews, uh, similar to the original audience of this letter, most likely, as uh, John, I, I think, I believe, he wrote this letter to Jewish Christians in Asia Minor. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Of course, uh, the Mormons think that it's referring to Jesus coming to uh, the lost tribes of Israel who somehow found their way to the Americas and uh, all that thing. No. It's pretty simple, actually. The Gentiles. That's all it is. There are, she- there are sheep that he has from the fold of the Gentiles that are his. And he is going to claim them. And note, he's, he's just, it's not in the future. He's not, I will have, or anything. They're mine. He already knows who they are. And he will, in time, gather them. This is similar to what we see in Acts 18, as Paul, outside of Corinth, is a little skittish because he's experienced some bad things in some cities. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Okay, remember this. Whenever God says, do not be afraid, usually it's accompanied by, I am with you. The shepherd is with him. So lay aside the fear. Paul could be tempted to fear too. Paul, how much more me and you? Okay. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, at least in that city. For I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus tells Paul to remain in Corinth precisely because, again, I have many who in this city who are my people, not will become my people. They've already been elect before the foundation of the earth, and now it's time to gather them in to the flock under the one shepherd. One flock, Jew and Gentile, brought together under the one shepherd, just in keeping with the promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 in many ways. He's not creating two flocks, one flock. 
just like there's one body. It's not like there's, you know, from God's perspective, you know, oh, I've got my Jewish body and now I've got my Gentile body. No. There's one body, Jew and Gentile. There's not one living temple for the Jew that made up of Jews and another living temple made up of Gentiles. But as it says in Ephesians 2, these have been brought together into one living temple. One bride. Jesus doesn't have a Jewish bride and a Gentile bride. He's got one bride. He's not a polygamist. One bride. And so, united to Christ in the power of the Spirit, we are also united to one another in the power of the Spirit. There's one flock. Okay? We are only a part of that one flock. Okay? We're united to all those other Christians, not just in Tucson, but around the world. All those who are united to him. One flock. And so for the sheep to experience salvation, someone must die for the sheep, and Jesus the shepherd did that very thing. Thirdly, the good shepherd obeys the Father unto death. Jesus makes this really odd statement. Or, I don't know, I find it odd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Did anyone's bells go off in their head? They should. Jesus is saying, the Father loves me because I lay my life down for the sheep. That could be easily misunderstood. Okay? If you go to my blog, I, I uh, yesterday blogged about this um, in a great, greater expanse when it comes to the idea of sanctification and, and God's love for us and whether it increases or decreases. And uh, the Puritans help tremendously in this regard. Uh, Puritans like Samuel Rutherford, Thomas Goodwin, Stephen Sharnock, uh, non-Puritan Francis Tortino, remember? Okay, okay. Um, they help a lot in this as well. He, he helps a lot in this. Obviously, in the, inter, in the love between the members of the Trinity, it is normal for them to love. It is necessary for them, in a sense, to love one another. Okay, but when it comes to the creature. The Puritans distinguished between, uh, with regard to the elect anyway, two different kinds of love. The first was the love of beneficence, or benevolence. Yeah, benevolence. Okay? And that is the love that, that God has for the creatures, for the elect. Okay? It is the foundation of every blessing that they receive in Christ. It is an unconditional love. And if you're in Christ, you have it. It is full, it is complete, there are not degrees of this love in any way, shape, or form. Every Christian who is, a, who is united to Christ and adopted by the Father in Christ, they have this love unconditionally and fully. Okay? The Puritans also talked about the love of complacency, which is really, from our perspective, a really lousy term, because we think of complacency in a very negative sense. Okay? But what this is is sort of a, it's a delight 
okay? A delight which can grow or can shrink. That it, indeed, when Paul is talking about how we can um, grow in our walk with God and please the Father, that he is more delighted in us when we obey than when we disobey. Okay? That we're still unconditionally loved. But there's also an aspect of love that is conditional, a delighting in the other person that increases. Parents, you know this. Married people, you know this. You love that other person absolutely, completely, unconditionally, one hopes. My children will always be my children. They will never cease to be my children. I will always love them no matter what they do. But there are moments when I delight in them, and there are moments when I want to pound my head against the wall. I haven't stopped loving them but I'm not delighting in them in that moment. Does that distinction make sense? Because it's very helpful to keep us out of a lot of danger when it comes to the idea of sanctification. If all you focus on is the unconditional love of God, really, you don't care about delighting the Father because you think you can't. If I treated my children the same way every moment of every day, regardless of what they did, I would raise psychopaths. Because they would have no concept for, for doing what is good and for doing and avoiding what is wrong. I would raise dangerous people if I did that. Okay? In sanctification, God is not raising dangerous people. And so indeed, we see the discipline of God when we disobey. But as we see in, in Hebrews 11, it is precisely because He loves us as His sons that He disciplines. So, let's go back to Jesus. The eternal Son has also taken on flesh and bone in order to be a mediator. And so there's a sense in which, uh, in addition to the unchanging, necessary love they have for one another as members of the Trinity, there's something else going on. We see this in places like Luke 2, where we see Jesus growing in stature and favor with God and man. How can Jesus grow in favor with God? As a human being who is the mediator. Mark Jones in his book on antinomianism sums up what the Puritans have said in this way. Again, this love, particularly with this passage, this love has to do with the ad extra will of God with respect to the God-man in his role as mediator. Okay? So this is the Son as mediator that we're talking about. God delights in His Son, not only necessarily because He is His Son, but also voluntarily because Christ obeys the Father perfectly, and this brings delight to the Father. 
the son's continued obedience as the mediator brings delight to the father's heart. Just as our growth in obedience to the father brings delight to his heart. All right. I hope I haven't dug any big heretical pits. I feel like I'm, I'm like, you know, walking a precipice here. Okay. As man in mediator, Jesus is subject, in a sense, to the love of complacency, too. This, this additional delight is somehow connected to whether he fulfills his function as the mediator. Jesus continues... No one takes my life from me. Jesus is not subject to the will of those who threaten him. Okay, the Pharisees who already have made threats against him, who have already tried to kill him and he slipped away a number of times, he's not subject to them. It's going to happen on his terms. He's in control. When it's time, it will happen. But more than that, what we need to see is that his death is actually an act of obedience. Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was his death on the cross the will of the Father? Yeah. And according to Jesus here in verse 18, this charge I have received from my Father. He is commanded by the Father to lay down his life and to pick it up again for the salvation of his people. And Jesus obeys and fulfills the Father's charge. The Father gave him this authority. He gave him this charge for the well-being of the sheep, and Jesus perfectly fulfills it. We see again Uh, that Jesus and the Father are in an eternal covenant, and it was agreed that Jesus would die for God's people. This is alluded to in Hebrews 13. Now, the benediction that we're going to have today, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I might sound completely crazy to you at this moment. Jesus certainly sounded crazy to a lot of the Jews that were standing around him that day. And so when they say that uh, he has a demon, he's crazy, they're not saying two different things. They most likely thought he was crazy because he had a demon. Okay. So there's a large group that thought he's nuts. He is deceived by an, uh, by an unclean spirit, and we've talked about this before, and therefore, you know, that's part of why he needs to die, because he's trying to lead us into disobedience, into worshiping false gods. That is sort of what they're, where they're going with this. But there were some that said, no, wait a minute, he couldn't be that way because he healed the man born blind. Before we discard the words of Jesus, we have to reckon with the signs that he performed. They work together. All right. A good shepherd, the good shepherd, is one who protects the sheep from predators, from illness, and their own self-destructive habits while providing them with good pasture and clean water. 
We have these same needs physically and spiritually. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill them. By virtue of his death for the sheep, he is the good shepherd. He is the only one worthy of our trust and our praise. He is the obedient shepherd who rescues us because we go astray. Let us rest under his watch. Let us cry out to our shepherd when danger arises. Let us look to our shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For like sheep without a shepherd, we were torn and tossed, afraid and fearful, in danger, um, abused, failing to thrive. There's so many ways for us to express what we were apart from Jesus. But I thank you that you have given us a worthy, unnoble shepherd who has come to give us life and life abundant, to help us thrive spiritually. One who protects us. Help us to meditate on this. On our need in the way, and the way that Jesus meets those needs. That our hearts would well up with increasing gratitude, joy, and wonder. That we have such a great shepherd. That we, who are so stiff-necked, have come into such great blessedness that it overtakes us. In Jesus' name, amen.